Happy New Year, everyone. It's officially the first live stream of 2023. And I wish I was bringing more optimism, but as you read the news, people seem to be predicting, very specifically talking about Kathy Wood, but uh, for markets in general, that there is a hell of a lot more pain to come. I've got very regular, seemingly every week now, amazingly, guest Dave Weisberger here to discuss that and all the other news that's driving the markets, including Cameron Winklevoss is very, very, very aggressive to DCG's Barry Silbert today. You guys do not want to miss this one. Happy New Year. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel, take your champagne cork from New Year's, and pop it right on that like button. I hope that all of you had an amazing New Year's Eve celebration. Feels strange that it's Monday and everybody's still off, even though New Year's Eve was two days ago. I was uh, gearing up to get my kids back to school and back to normalcy. Then all of a sudden, I remembered that they would once again be home. On Monday. So we're still kind of in vacation mode over here. I hope, though, that you all have had an amazing new year. And I hope that even though it is just an arbitrary date and a random moment uh, with the Earth orbiting the sun, that maybe triggering a new year can trigger some good news. But it doesn't certainly feel that way at the moment, even as Bitcoin continues to trade sideways and markets seem to potentially be bottoming now you guys may have noticed scrolling there across the bottom we are sponsored by prime xbt check that out in the description all the information that you need there and without further ado i'm going to go ahead and bring on today's amazing guest we've got dave weisberger i think you i think we can fairly say a man who needs no introduction at least here now i mean we're here every week right i mean it feels like that i mean you know i I don't mind talking about stuff it we're in a world where not a whole lot has changed over the last month. Uh, it feels like we're kind of stuck in amber, you know, kind of like, you know, the, the mosquitoes in Jurassic Park. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it's not going to take a million years to get out of this bear market. <laughs> it might be it feels like a million years. <laughs> it, it really does feel uh, like a million years. And it's hard to feel particularly optimistic, I think, in the short term. Right. I mean, I hinted at it below. I mean, Bloomberg had this article here. I can just go ahead and like share it. Kathy Woods, grim 2022 is over next year. Also looks bad. Right. And that's interesting, I think, to us because, you know, Kathy Wood obviously heavily invested in tech stocks, Tesla being one of her larger holdings. And that's where the brunt of the bear market has been felt. And also probably the greatest corollary for Bitcoin as it's become a risk on asset. So. I mean, do you think that the pain is is going to continue or do you think that maybe seeing all these articles that say how much pain we're going to get could be a bottoming signal? Well, I mean, it depends on a few things, but probably most important is the, the, the central banks. I mean, the Fed is in an interesting situation. I mean, I said on this program many times and, and, and before the tightening started, I said the Fed was trapped. Because it never occurred to me that they would be that successful in doing what they wanted, which they have been, which is invert the yield curve. Uh, They need to keep the long end of the curve relatively low so that governments can finance enormous deficits. I mean, that's what we have. Frankly, it's the same throughout most of the G7. 
uh, most of the world, actually. And this, they need the long end of the curve to not be too bad. Uh, and the short end of the curve, they couldn't really care about. They're trying to push that up to squash inflation. With the government passing yet another big fiscal stimulus plan at the end of the year with their the $1.7 trillion uh, uh, you know, omnibus, omnibus. bill. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're sitting in Jerome Powell's shoes, he's basically like, okay, you know, maybe I can stop inflation by crushing risk assets and crushing the rich. Uh, the, the amount of loss, I think I read somewhere last year was well, certainly numerically, maybe not, and certainly not on a, on, a, on a percentage basis, but numerically was the largest single loss to uh, holders of assets in history. And, you know, maybe that's enough from his perspective. But the truth of the matter is, as recession starts to bite, and, and it probably won't bite in the U.S. first, but as recession starts to bite, central banks around the world have an interesting problem. It's like, well, what do we do? Uh, my personal, very cynical view is a recession in 2023 is not that big a deal to the people in power. A recession in 2024 is a massive deal because that's when the presidential elections are. So I would not be remotely surprised to see the market continue to see the Fed continue to hike and or not try to combat recession for the next 12 months. But I strongly believe the 12 months after that, uh, they're going to basically go no mas. And, you know, people who think the Fed is independent and not political, I mean, good luck with that. But I, I think that that's possible. Now, that said, markets do tend to anticipate things. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say markets anticipate things. So, yeah. So it should, it should, the market should pivot ahead of the Fed in, in theory. But interestingly, you talk about the sting of recession, right? I think obviously in the United States, as you said, it will be last. Maybe it will be a little less dramatic than for people in other places. I have this article from Bloomberg. Difficult or impossible for a third of adults to cover an extra 20-pound expense. Obviously, this is in the UK. But I found this to be a pretty astounding number. Polling for citizens' advice found that 37% of those surveyed would struggle or be able, unable to do so, with about 25% saying they would find it somewhat difficult, 7% very difficult, and 4% impossible. That's to effectively, uh, you know, to spend another 20 bucks a month. I mean, yeah, I'm just looking something up. Um, yeah, basically, I also looked up, I, I, according to a recent survey uh, conducted over the summer, 46% of U.S. consumers, um, well, let's see, I just thought I had nearly half. Oh, hold on a minute. I got to find this. Uh, I mean, to me, this is an astounding number. Yeah, I mean, that number is, number is crazy. Um it, 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 I, I read recently, I'm trying to find it, but some staggering percentage of Americans can't cover a few hundred dollars expense, too. I mean, you know, people's, you know, it, it, I mean, it's different because it depends on how you do it. You might have a credit card to cover it. But, you know, it, what it tells you, and, and it's not surprising, is certainly the UK has serious issues. I mean, I lived there for five and a half years. I kind of understand it. Uh, you know, I don't think that they're, they're, they're dumb enough to do it. But it looks pretty clear that if a snap election were called, and, and their system is different than ours, it's not every four years, it's it's every, I forgot exactly, four and a half, five years, you have to call an election, but you can call an election whenever the hell you want if you have no confidence in parliament. Uh, 
and the, the polls basically say the Tories would lose power. And so they're, you know, because people are really not happy. You know, there's a lot of bad going on. And so, you know, they're in a bigger, they don't have the global reserve currency like we do. And if you look throughout Europe, there's lots of countries where there's similar pain. And so if you, if you wonder where central bank, uh, central banks will break ranks, it's probably not going to be here first is kind of the point. But you're right. I mean, you know, when people get that close to the line, uh, that's when voting and that's when political pressure amps up. Right. I mean, if they were looking to break something, it seems that they've broken the bottom 90 percent of people on the planet. Right. And so I don't understand how these people can effectively take more pain. I mean, obviously, plenty of times in history, Great Depression where they have. But I mean, what happens when you're a normal person and you have a slight emergency or your mortgage goes up or as we know, heating bills are going to go up a hell of a lot more probably than 20 bucks. Right. Well, I mean, inflation, people. Look, I, 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 I recently attended my, uh, my HOA, my homeowners association meeting in my condo. And I bought my condo literally a year ago. And this year in our condo, our board was, was pleased to represent that our increase compared to other buildings in, in Florida are, is on the low side. The increase in the HOA fee is 28%. The increase in insurance premiums was over 40%. The increase in water, sewer from the town, uh, other utilities was over 20%. So, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who haven't budgeted. Now, Florida is a little bit worse than most places because after the building in Surfside fell, I mean, you remember people, your readers probably know about that. They pass laws which are forcing buildings. Uh, they're basically taking the decision out of the condo boards and saying you're going to do structural inspections, which I think is the right thing to do. I mean, I'm not going to. Right, but it's very expensive to get 1950s buildings on Miami Beach up to code. Right. Now, my building is is only five years, six years old. So and that's why we are below average with a 28 percent increase. I mean, it's people don't understand and, and people go, oh, well, that's a rich person problem. It's like not really. It's a problem that's going to happen in every building, which means rents, which you would think would come down due to supply and demand, can't because the the cost side of the equation is so high. And so, you know, these are the sorts of things that people don't understand. Insurance going up, water going up, electricity going up, all of these things that tend to be lagging raises are, are still to work through the economy. So, yes, gas prices have come back down. You know, emptying the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been very helpful. There's no doubt. But there are some inflationary pressures out there that I'm not uh, that, that will show up in the in the in the months ahead. And so I'm not nearly as as optimistic as people who, you know, others who think that inflation will have is already peaked. And maybe it has in terms of the peak, but it's going to look stubborn. And we'll see how it goes, but I think businesses are going to be forced to do something to help people, uh, you know, basically the market uh, to, to get people back to where they need to be. So we'll see. I mean, I, I don't think that the Fed is done like tomorrow. I think at a minimum, there's six months more uh, for us to endure of this. All right. That could be six months, though, of massively decreasing rate hikes and then flat. Right. I, there's the idea. A lot of people have the idea that the pivot goes back to easy money and QE. Mike McGlone, who's obviously here on Mondays very often, says that ain't happening anytime soon or ever. Right. But that so so the pivot we're looking for here is for them to stop punishing the market. 
Right. I mean, I was reading an article over the weekend. The, the, the key point, and, and once again, I made this point over a year ago with you. So the key point is, will the Fed ever get to a point where interest rates are higher than the rate of inflation? i.e. positive real interest rates. We haven't had them in a very, very long time. And it's interesting how the markets have gotten slammed with negative real interest rates, but they have. That tells you something about the ability to productively employ capital as risk capital. People don't believe you could actually do so on average. I mean, I'm not saying you can't on the margin, but on average, that's a very strong statement, but that does seem to be the case. And so look, you know, my thesis is a little bit, you know, is basically difficult 2023, uh, uh, but probably the 2024, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I agree with Micah in 2023. I don't agree with him in 2024. I will be stunned if into the election cycle, there's not enormous pressure for easy money. I was a bit stunned that we didn't see it for the midterms, to be quite frank, because we have a historical precedent of that that should have kicked in this year. I mean, I talked about it quite quite a bit, and even in these hawk, you know hawkish cycles that I think 12 out of the 13 times the Fed has been in a cycle like this, markets have actually performed well, but that would be in the 20, end of 2023, 2024, looking historically. It's a year and a half or two years later. But when there is an election, even a midterm, generally you do see that Q4 rally, and we just haven't seen much. Well, I mean, you got to understand there, there are a few things that were going on. Uh, thing number one, they, the issue of the day on the economy was not growth, was not jobs. It was not investment. It was inflation. And so the Fed, gas prices. <laughs> right, the Fed was focused uh, politically on the most important political issue, right? You know, the Republicans were campaigning on inflation. The Democrats were campaigning on abortion and end of democracy because of Trump, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Democrats were not campaigning on the economy, but the fact is, is the one thing they wanted to blunt of what the Republicans are saying was inflation. So it should surprise nobody that the Fed, and I'm not saying they're a tool of the Democrats. I just think they tend to be, they tend to do, lean into the, the ruling party. Uh, and, you know, even in the, in 2020, they did. I mean, people, I mean, Trump lost, but you can't, you can't accuse the Fed of in the election year, not of goosing the markets. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I mean, it was the largest liquidity injection ever during the pandemic. So, I mean, the Fed is, their political independence is much less than it's been. And, you know, maybe it's coincidence and people are saying, yeah, no, no, that just happens to be. It's like, no, no I don't believe that. But the, the fact of the matter is when you look at, at, at why markets drop so much, I mean, let's be blunt. When you talk about tech stocks and you talk about the equity markets, I mean, it's still not cheap. By any historical measure, are still high. I mean, it's still not cheap. I mean, we had, you know, to to use different people. I mean, Hayek would have called it calls it, you know, the, a, a melt the, the melt up boom. Others will call it, you know, just you know whatever a crack up boom or or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, we had a a rally from the depth from that 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 point in the pandemic that was massive, and people buying Peloton's twenty year earning ten year earnings based upon what they're going to have for the next year. I mean, that just gives you an idea. I mean, th th that's my poster child. I mean, you could talk about crypto as much as you want, and we, we should talk about Bitcoin. I think that's very important. But if you want to see the poster child for irrational exuberance, to use Alan Greenstein's old term, it was Peloton. What human being believed that, that, that working from home and setting up a, gym, a, a home gym 
because you're 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 locked down for a year is a sustainable thing. Well, we saw yeah. that with uh, we saw that with so many industries. Zoom, obviously, uh, Peloton, as you mentioned, all of the telehealth companies. But there are some that weren't specific to the pandemic, like Tesla, right? Which I love my Tesla, <clears throat> but that I mean, one of the most overvalued stocks of all time, right? I mean, the market right. cap higher than the next two or three car manufacturers combined when sales were only a fraction. Well, but but Tesla's a really interesting situation, and and frankly. <laughs> it's fairly predictable. In hindsight, it, you, you kind of hit yourself in the head saying, why don't I short this? But, but one just thing- before you go on, before you go on, the thing is that this is one of those rare cases where everyone was right, but got completely wrecked because right. they did short it. They were just too early and it continued to squeeze. Right. The premise was correct, but the trade was bad. But Right. Yeah, but what is the, you know, going back years and, and the benefit of being old, I remember the first, there have been story stocks forever. When you get a story stock where people are investing not upon earnings, not upon you know what their current product is, but what their what their product could look like in ten or twenty years, and what do they represent? You get a story stock, and there have been many of them over the years. Things that people bought into because they said, "Okay, this is going to be incredible." Hell, even you know even Cisco at one point was going to move beyond network equipment and routers to powering the global internet. And so in the internet bubble in 2000, it got way ahead of itself. Lots of companies have done that. People were buying Tesla because, not because of cars, but because he's gonna have his own self-driving car fleet. He's gonna be able to tie that with SpaceX to be a global network. He's gonna have all of these things that go well beyond cars, kind of like what Amazon did. People didn't buy Amazon in the depths of the internet bubble or after the crash or, or during it, they didn't push up the first time because of books. People forget yeah. Amazon used to be books. Just literally a book company. But like now, you with the benefit of hindsight, you go back and you say, wait, how could I have been so stupid in 2002? Why didn't I see Amazon had plenty of cash and they were in a position to own books? Who cares about books? They literally are selling everything and handling all data and all traffic. And they basically have this enormous franchise that goes way beyond books. So people were saying that about Tesla. But a funny thing happened this year. Uh, you know, look, I'm a fellow libertarian, so I kind of appreciate it. But the fact of the matter is Elon Musk abandoned his liberal base in terms of supporters. He didn't abandon them. He never really was was their hero. He's nobody's hero. He's his own man. He does what he wants to do. But the story of Tesla became challenged. First, electric cars are happening in a lot of other companies. And second, he went out and spent a ton of his money and sold a pile of stock to buy Twitter. And the, the, the people, his biggest fans, didn't like that very much. So don't be remotely surprised. I don't think it affected their purchasing of the car. I mean, look, I, I, I'm truth in advertising. I bought a Tesla Y. I love it. Yeah, uh, I'll drop one. Uh, you know, down here in Florida, it's awesome. I wouldn't want to have one in the Northeast uh, where, you know, because we all saw what just happened a few weeks ago in the cold. Uh, not so good. But, you know, the fact is, is the bloom's off the rose. And story stocks go by the herds, you know, the, the internet trolls who buy a few shares. And a lot of them deserted him. Let's call it what it is. I mean, you can you can see it just by reading on Twitter, ironically, which is the platform that he bought. That's the place that they all go to bash him for, for doing it, of course. And listen, I see a lot of people in the comments defending Tesla. Obviously, uh, Jeff says Tesla's being bashed right now because it isn't part of the establishment. Fair. Model 3 is the best-selling car in Spain. 
best-selling car in Norway. I want to be clear. I'm not criticizing Tesla, the car, the company. I'm saying that the stock itself was way overvalued. So if you believe in these things, actually, you enjoy the fact that the stock is coming way back down to a fair value. Right. But the point, <laughs> the, the, the first, your first comment, I, I didn't catch who that was. That's was exactly my point. Yeah. Tesla is being bashed right now because it isn't part so, of the so establishment. The architect, Jeff, I would say I agree with you completely. The point is a lot of his fanboys uh, you know, left because they're annoyed with that. Now, uh, you know, look, I, I as I said, I, I, I have no horse in this race. I have no Tesla shares. I am not short. Uh, at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is that story stocks move based on stories. Are we at an equilibrium now? Could very well be. Uh, your first story that you reported, Scott, is the one that's going to tell. If Kathy Wood is able to hold and able to survive 2023 or the first half of 2023 without puking her position, uh, that tells you a lot about what will happen with that stock. I, I think Kathy Wood uh, is, it, I, I kind of recognize someone who's a lot like I have been over 30 years, which is generally right, but also awfully early and not awesome on timing. Yeah, like I said, that's exactly the same case for all of Wall Street that was making Tesla the most heavily shorted stock on the entire run up, which allowed it to continue going up. I mean, there's people here saying, what is the fair value of Tesla? Tesla being overvalued is a common misconception. I'm just saying if you value Tesla stock, you know, based on earnings and, you know, like you would any other stock and you don't buy into the story, as Dave said, you can determine what it's worth based on the story that you believe. But if you're going to compare it to other companies, the stock should not have a market cap of greater than two larger companies that sell more cars. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not nearly as bearish as you and, and I'll, I'll never forget a conversation with. Uh, I would buy I, Tesla here, to be honest, or, or very I, soon. I, I, so I, I had yeah. a conversation many years ago uh, when Tesla was at 200 pre two splits, I think. So it's definitely not down at that level. Maybe, yeah, there was two, it had two splits, didn't it? Yeah. 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 I bought so yeah. 200 the first time with my friend Jim Angel, who's a professor at Georgetown in their business school. And he was going through all the metrics of why Tesla's the most overvalued and how it's as big as short. And I'm like, yeah, you're not getting it. People aren't buying Tesla because of selling cars, they're buying it because of things, of, of, of building infrastructure. So, you know, I was reading articles over the, uh, last weekend about electric car charging. Tesla has such a stranglehold on the best charging network. I mean, it's massive. I mean, I, 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 I researched this because I wanted to buy an electric car. Uh, you know, it, it felt a lot better when gas was at five, the gas is at three. I mean, whatever. I mean, I still like it. It's, it's, it's great. It's easy. I enjoy the car. But the fact is, is our office building is not alone. It has a Tesla charger. It doesn't have an EV charger. It has a Tesla charger. And there are a lot of those out there. And they are, it is a much bigger thing. So they do have, interesting, their, their battery production. The interesting question to me, and, and I don't know the answer, so that's why it's a question, is as battery technology improves, will Tesla factory, their gigafactories, be able to stay current? Because if you own the battery manufacturer, and you own the full supply chain with charging, you have a big edge. So these are all things that let stock analysts, let your audience, you know, yeah, bet on. I'm <laughs> sure there's 100 people in your audience who know this point better than I do. 
myself as well. And you said, obviously, it's, in talk, it's important to talk about Bitcoin in the context of all of this. We've sort of seen what I would describe as a bottoming. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's article right here. Scott, Scott let, 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 me be, let me be super clear. I, the last time I was this bullish about Bitcoin was when it was, it was toward the end of it bouncing between 7,500 and 9,000. Uh, which it did for like a nine-month period several years ago, pre-pandemic. It feels like that time, actually. I was going to say, we talk, we're talking about all this pain yet to come, and I'll bring that back up in a minute, in 2023. I sort of feel like it's going to be more like the miserable, sideways, choppy 2018 and not horrible. I, of course, 2018, you were sitting at 6,000 forever, and then it did drop, which was extremely painful. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. I just think we're more in for a very long, boring period. I could be completely wrong. More so than Bitcoin steadily dropping to 5,000 or 6,000, as a lot of people think. I mean, well, there are a lot I, I, of signals. I, people, the, 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 what I think is the biggest misconception in Bitcoin is people look at what's going on with the miners and say how horrible that is, how bearish that is. That's a bunch of horseshit. Let's be really clear. What's going on with the miners is massively bullish for Bitcoin. Now, that is a contrarian view. I know it's a contrarian view, so I want to explain it. But I want people to understand the reason miners are in such deep dog doo-doo is for a combination of factors, most notably the fact that there's so much mining capacity and the difficulty isn't going down enough. And so their margins are being squeezed. So what does that mean? That means costs in the Bitcoin network as the network is getting stronger, stronger, stronger are going down. Yes, when the halving happens, miners are going to get pounded again. I mean, mining is turning into rapidly into a com completely commoditized business where it used to be no a very non-commoditized business. What is the single best thing that can happen for Bitcoin to gain global adoption? And that's you never have to worry about the network security or never have to worry about economic rent being earned by miners. I mean, it's not great for mining investors, but... It 100% is great for Bitcoin investors because it tells you the network is secure. It also tells you something else, Scott. It tells you that the idea of building a competitor to Bitcoin, where the network could be strong enough to get actual new capital investment to build mining on a different standard, I think is it, I, I think that ship, that ship has passed. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't see it. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, people are asking, do you like the mining stocks here? It's such a tricky sector in terms of market cap because it's designed to bleed profitability. I mean, in my mind, it's exactly what you just said. This is a terrible time to be a miner, but it's actually good for Bitcoin and people confuse those two things. Right. Bitcoin, I, 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 what's happening with hash rate is very bad for Bitcoin mining. Right. If you're the, a the, huge the thing miner. The thing is we are seeing some stuff. Miners who are who are, are working with the electrical grids to stabilize grids in areas that need grid stability. By the way, areas that need grid stability, that's the United States. Right now, people are focusing in Texas and some other things. I think after what we've seen you know, in terms of extreme weather events and with people predicting more extreme weather events, I mean, I don't want to get into a climate change debate, but let's just say that 
mining stabilizing grids is becoming a mainstream narrative in his actually it's one of ryan selkis's theses uh, i don't know if you plug him but you know the fact is oh, he, i love selkis writes, and everyone should he writes a his, great uh, year-end yeah. piece it's one of his theses so if you're a miner miners that are going to have i'm not going to say the word exclusive because that's not right but miners that have great relationships and are working with power grids who can gain themselves preferred power costs in order to do that are going to be solid investments. And that, that, that's whether it's renewable, that's what regardless, but renewable miners, people with, with access to cheap power who are in the grid, where there's where, where, you know, with, I don't even want to use with permission with encouragement might very well be it do well. The fact is, is the random guy who buys cheap ASICs and thinks their power is cheap and can go for it is going to have a real problem. Sure. I, I think that I think that that's very very clear. And now, since we're uh, on the uh, topic of Bitcoin, I think everybody knows. And this to me happened right before uh, our stream, and I sent it over to you. Gemini's Cameron Winklevoss slams crypto exec Barry Silbert over frozen funds. So, for context, what's happening here, guys? You probably know who Barry Silbert is, but he's the CEO of DCG, which owns Genesis, which has been. Uh, I will just say repeatedly beaten by insult. They had a 2.1, I think, billion dollar loan to Three Arrows Capital. They've been exposed to basically everything. It's been a complete disaster. Well, Genesis was behind the Gemini Earn product. You probably know that that caused the Gemini Earn product to basically cease and no ability for people to withdraw. Well, Cameron uh, owns Gemini and has gone after Barry very publicly now in a open letter that he printed on Twitter saying that Barry Silbert has been using bad faith stall tactics, I believe is the quote, basically saying, we tried to engage you in December. You said, fine. And you've ignored us ever since people are suffering. Nobody can get their money back. What the hell is going on at DCG? I mean, to, to print this letter publicly on Twitter, how bad are things at DCG right now? Well, I think the fact, look, I, I have no personal knowledge of the situation, zero. So anything I say is total speculation. What I would say, and this is what I've told people internally, because I've been asked this question multiple times. There are multiple types of bankruptcies, right? I, I'm not a bankruptcy attorney. I'm not as expert in, you know, in the, in the nuance. And they vary from, from, from geography to geography, the U.S., has its form, Australia has its form, Europe has its form, et cetera. But roughly speaking, there is, I want to freeze and, and force creditors to work together to take some haircut for me to reopen and reoperate. We call that chapter 11 here, other people call that different. Roughly there is, I am, I am no, the other extreme is I'm done, fight over the assets. Whatever assets I have, fight over the priority, fight over the assets. And in the middle, there's, I don't know yet, but let's stop people from beating the crap out of us. Let's figure out if there's operating entities that we can sell uh, that can that potentially can earn. Uh, and we want to stop the pain so they can get back to operation. Yeah, my equity holders are going to get wiped out in this scenario. In, in chapter 11, you don't necessarily get fully wiped out. In the middle scenario, you do get wiped out. In the other scenario, equity is wiped out and debtors are fighting pennies on the dollar. So there's this continuum. And we all know that, right? I mean, that that's not news to anybody. What's not obvious is there's also a fourth thing that's to the left of chapter 11 on my, on my thing, which is 
I'm effectively bankrupt. I know I can earn myself out of bankruptcy, but I need all my creditors to cooperate with each other. And we need to get time. We need to refactor debt. This is typically what happens with sovereigns. So every time Argentina, you know, threatens debt default or Venezuela or other com or other countries, they they try before they actually default, they try to get creditors to accept some, you know, haircut or delayed or whatever. Genesis sure looks and feels like it's in that category where they can't get their creditors to act together. They think they have more than enough earning power to earn their way out of it, kind of AKA the way uh, Ifinex did with Tether back in, in after they lost, what was it, $700 million uh, yeah. with that loan. And they did manage to earn their way out of it, uh, et cetera. But the reality is it feels like that. In that scenario, if you're running that, you're going to appear to be completely obfuscating to those creditors who are willing to work with you, AKA the Winklevi, clearly are willing to work with them because he may have five other creditors that Cameron and Tyler don't know anything about who aren't willing to work with them. And they don't yeah. want to go so far as to put it in chapter 11 because probably, and I'm once again, not a lawyer, don't know, but there is at least a risk that the corporate structure involved with Genesis and DCG would trigger certain clauses or certain actions if it were to officially be in chapter 11. Those actions, funny enough, might be bad for Gemini Earn. We don't know. So, Without knowing what's going on, this just seems like Cameron and Tyler could be, it could be one of two things. It could either be uh, they're ignorant of this process and, and, and it could very well be that on advice of counsel, uh, Barry Silver can't talk to them. Yeah. Uh, or it could be that they're fully aware of this counsel, this, this process, don't give a crap and want to force them into chapter 11. It could also be a deflectionary PR stunt, right? Like I liked Tyler and Cameron, but this certainly uh, deflects a whole lot of stress and blame off of them to put this out there publicly. Right. I want to read two paragraphs from this for people because they probably can't see it, but just to, so they can see how strong of a letter this is. The idea in your head that you can quietly hide in your ivory tower and then this will all just magically go away or that this is someone else's problem is pure fantasy. To be clear, this mess is entirely of your own making. DCG, of which you are the founder and CEO, owes Genesis... 1.675 billion. This is the money that Genesis owes to earn users and other creditors. You took this money, the money of school teachers, to fuel greedy share buybacks, illiquid venture investments, and kamikaze grayscale nav trades that balloon the fee generating AUM of your trust, all at the expense of creditors and all for your own personal gain. It's now time you take responsibility for this and do the right thing. Here's the interesting it's not lost on us that you started your career as a bankruptcy restructuring associate, to your point, Dave. And it's not lost on us that you've been working desperately to try and firewall DCG from the problems that you created at Genesis. You should dispense with this fiction because we all know what you know, that DCG and Genesis are beyond commingled. Everyone takes orders from you and always has, and anything you have done after the fact to pretend otherwise won't hold up. If instead you had put all this energy towards finding a resolution, we would have been done by now. Everyone would be in a better place, including you. I mean, damn. As a... I, I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 impossible to know, you know, but it feels like they're trying to lift the, the kimono and let people know what the hell's going on. 
And, you know, the, the, the fact is, I, I wrote in my, well, I'm, I'm actually writing my year end piece will go out on the coin routes blog uh, today, probably or tomorrow morning. And the work, the, 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 I also talked about it in my year end review. The fact of the matter is, if you want to sum up 22, 2022, is it's all about risk. And it's were people were, were, were risk being taken that people didn't know about were how how were people taking risk? You know, you know, was it, you know, with their money or was it with other people's money? <laughs> and were they taking too much risk? Uh, you know, and, and everything was that. And the fact of the matter that the fact that you could have had under collateralized loans as part of a program, which was literally marketed as we loan our our coins out, you put your money here, we loan it out on a fully collateralized basis and earn and get an earn yield on a fully collateralized basis. That was how these things were were marketed. The fact that that it wasn't is incredibly problematic. And it doesn't matter in my mind whether it wasn't because the the company itself lied or it wasn't because the company was lied to. The Voyager case, the company lied. I'm sorry, uh, it's not a question. Yes. He lied. He yeah. he he went from doing Bitcoin lending to arbitrageurs, uh, generating a yield which was higher than Fed funds to, oh my God, rates are starting to rise. I can't, and there's no real demand for loan, for doing Bitcoin anymore. Uh, I'm going to go to an uncollateralized loan to some guys in Singapore because they're famous. Okay, so that's one extreme. Now, the other extreme, yeah, I'm sorry, I know you're a creditor. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, listen, all I can do is laugh, my friend. Go I ahead. know you're a creditor, I understand, but that's what they did. How there's no how the DOJ is not involved in that I will never understand because that's that's clearly a lie. But uh, once again, not involved in the process, don't care, have no horse in that race. The other extreme is clearly what Cameron and Tyler are saying. They're saying we loan money to Genesis, believing that it was being handled on a fully collateralized basis. They obviously didn't take collateral for that loan because if they that's did, right. this wouldn't be the issue. No problem. Right. So they're claiming they were lied to. I mean, one could ask the question, you know, what does that mean? Is there a look through? Did they lie? I don't know. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I, I my biggest takeaway personally from 2022 is it should be the death of one of the SEC's favorite and my least favorite rules, the accredited investor rule. Because oh, there's one thing we know now, it's trusting experts and trusting rich people to do better due diligence than you and I might do is a really bad trade. I would take your audience and their ability to ferret out what's going on over uh, VCs or obviously the Winklevi, the, uh, you know, every day of the week. And we have this entire structure. And one of the reasons crypto desperately doesn't want to be called securities because they don't want to be limited to accredited investors. The whole thing is idiotic. There it should be no accredited investor rule. There maybe brokers should have education standards. Fine, risk disclosures one hundred percent should be improved. But the notion of this is a problem. And so when you look at risk and you're talking about Gemini Earn, it's like I my question is okay. You're writing this letter. Shouldn't you have done this before you put nine hundred million dollars with another company? 
Yeah, and I don't know, actually, Barry just responded, which the guy's been like uh, non-existent on Twitter for a while, but he said, DCG did not borrow $1.675 billion from Genesis. DCG has never missed an interest payment to Genesis and is current on all loans outstanding. Next loan maturity is May 2023. DCG delivered to Genesis and your advisors a proposal on December 29th and has not received any response. So clearly we have a pissing contest here between a bunch of billionaires, and I guess we're going to see what happens. And what's interesting is when you were just talking about those yield products, I was thinking, and accredited investors, I was thinking, well, Circle actually still offers an accredited investor loan program. You can make 4% or whatever it is being accredited. So while you were talking, I pulled it up, and Circle Yield is not accepting new loans at this time. We are evaluating future updates to the program. If you have questions, please reach our team. So listen, this was for accredited investors. This was supposed to be... You know, and it was a low yield, really effectively the same as a, you know, two, three year treasury or something like that. Maybe it's just over. Well, I mean, look, let's be let's be blunt about this. The same is true with gold. Same is true with every commodity out there. You can there is a market to loan gold. Obviously, Bitcoin and USDC and USDT have more. There are people who want to borrow it more likely because it's so easy and more portable. But the fact is, is you can do that in an environment where uh, where where risk free rates are double digit, you know, percentages below uh, inflation and or risk free rates are zero. Then one, two, three, four percent might, you know, that you might be able to get for natural demand for commodity borrows might be attractive. In a world where you could get 4.4% on short-term treasuries, why the hell would you risk, risk, you know, you have AAA versus, I don't know what what Circle is, but the fact is, in fact, Circle's business model or USDT's business model is they create this stable coin to grease the the wheels uh, uh, of, of, of the crypto economy and, and, and payments and everything else. And there's actual real demand for stable coins and they don't pay any interest on those stable coins they are very little and they collect treasury yields. So they make a lot of money. I mean, you know, but in that environment, where's the demand to lend stable coins at a, at a lower rate that you could get by, by doing treasury. So there's no demand for it. There's no reason for it until the situation reverses, go to zero treasury yields and these crypto yields will become attractive again. And hopefully the next time that happens, there will be appropriate risk disclosures and people will know what actual risks people are taking. And the ones who take risks that are not disclosed are in prison. So they're not there. People understand that's a bad business model to do. But the truth is, it's not in a vacuum, Scott. I mean, when if, if the Fed, if overnight rates were like the Bank of Japan, if they were 50 basis points instead of, you know, four point whatever percent. At 50 basis points, you may very well find uh, attractive yield products in crypto relatively, but not when it's at four and a half. Yeah. Uh, It means that CFI is just dead for now, right? Because the combination of lack of yield or trust and people actually moving towards self-custody now, I think is just a trend that is going to crush the even idea of that business for a while. By the way, I don't know if you saw this story. (laughs) 
you may not have, but Bitcoin core developer hack highlights self-custody risks, community response. I just happened to think when I mentioned self-custody, but this is a Bitcoin core developer guy who's renowned for his security and his self-custody got hacked. And this has caused quite a lot of people to run to Twitter and say, if this guy can't protect his coins, how can your average person protect their coins? So maybe there will be a uh, reversal from the self-custody trend if things like this continue to happen. I, I, I'll make a, a very simple, and I'll probably piss off a lot of people in your audience. But I, my prediction is insured custodians separated from exchange CFI uh, is going to be a very, very large trend that will emerge. You will see exchanges going back to being uh, the intermediation above custody, and they will have claims based on what they're doing for the, you know, no more than a day or so. So like, if you look at the way the Winklevoss twins, since we've talked about the market Gemini before earn, they said 90 3%, 95% of our coins are in cold wallets where seed phrases are split up over 20 locations, not known to anybody. It, it basically describes a situation where their cold storage is tighter security than, than, than nuclear weapons silos, right? And, and maybe that's true. And maybe Gemini as a custodian is frigging amazing. And maybe they do it perfectly. I don't know. I'm not saying that to be cynical. I literally don't know. And, and my guess is I've never heard of them being hacked. So probably they're pretty good. But the fact that custodians and, and, and exchanges are in the same business with no provable, verifiable Chinese walls is a problem. Yeah. Never again are people going to trust uh, a Sam Bankman freed. We haven't talked about this episode. They're never going to trust someone. I mean, frankly, Brian Armstrong says the right things. But there's no way in hell out that people are going to trust that any firm that has a custodian and operates it and operates an exchange isn't leaking information back and forth, right? right. But you would trust Brian Armstrong if BNY Mellon or State Street was custodying Coinbase assets. That's right. And if if Ian Y or someone was verifying what Bank of New York Mellon has, I mean, part of the reason that that Mazars, I'm sure although I haven't talked to them, but I'm sure their reason that they're no longer offering, you know, proof of reserve verification is because it's like if you, it, it, it's reminded if you go to the park and you see the guys with the playing three card Monty and are you going to verify that the bean is on any of the three cards? No, if you can't control the scenario of who's moving assets around. And crypto assets can be moved around much faster than accountants can, can, can you know, build them into spreadsheets. You're not going to want to put your name on that. But if a bank in New York or a State Street or Fidelity or Gemini for that matter is saying, okay, these assets are here, they haven't moved, they're not going to move. We in fact don't have the ability to move them. Here is how it works. All of a sudden you can start getting verification. My guess is you're gonna see a lot of that and despite the hoo-ha over self-custody, I don't think that self-custody is that bad. But the one thing that uh, an old friend of mine who used to run security at Two Sigma, who also teaches uh, secure InfoSec at Rutgers, I think, I think he still does, Bill Squires told me, the first rule of security is don't put all your eggs, oh, don't put too much honey in one pot. So the larger pot, the larger the, the amount you have in a particular wallet, the more likely it is people are going to try to figure out how to hack it. 
Yeah, you become a bigger target. That makes perfect sense. And also, I I think people see the self-custody trend, but an institution, a huge company, isn't putting their Bitcoin on a ledger and no. moving on, right? So when we talk about institutional adoption, which frankly is where most of the money is going to come from in the near future, they need trusted custodial solutions. Right. That and are so not you, the exchange. You, whether DeFi as it's currently constituted uh, it, it, it well, is it currently constituted. I know, but it, it, can I see a world where it, where an individual trading digital assets with their own ledger can trade with an exchange by putting their coins into a smart contract and interact with an institution who's using a global custodian that is using the same smart contract as a temporary intermediary? Can I see that kind of world evolving? Yes. That's the way the world needs to evolve. It will be a dramatic, more efficient way of trading all financial assets. Note, I'm not confining it to crypto. So that's the future. But I think we're going to be talking about it as the future for years. So the question is, is what evolves at what time? And it's always great on the first trading day of the year to sit here and talk about what's going to happen in 20 years. I don't know when it's going to happen, but people like Kathy Wood are looking at this saying financial assets are all going to trade digitally. Our securities laws that Gary Gensler insists will work obviously don't because you can't even support self-custody. In fact, you can't even support custody not owned or controlled by a central counterparty with SEC rules. Those need to change. And when they do change, you open up enormous business opportunities that can, you know, for you know, for what we currently call crypto, but might be very different tokens, etc. But there are many, many use cases that are still very, very relevant, most notably Bitcoin, because if the world, the world is rapidly approaching the point where a st global store of value is becoming more and more important, not in the US, but look at the inflation rate in Venezuela, look at the inflation rate in Argentina, look at the inflation rate in Turkey, and tell me those people don't look at Bitcoin and say, my God, this is much more stable. Yeah, it's dropped by 60% over the course of from its all-time high. That is a godsend compared to dropping, you know, 90% and and continuing, right? And so people need to understand that at a certain point, adoption of Bitcoin as a global store of value starts to become inevitable and it's dramatically underpriced compared to that. That's really the point. And there are other assets in the crypto sphere that have similar risk return profiles. The fact of the matter is we're still in a risk off period. And so we have to deal with that. Yeah, 100%. I don't think we can uh, find a better way to close out than you just making the uh, two minute case for Bitcoin, which I think was incredible. We might have to edit, cut up and uh, redistribute. Dave, thank you so much for showing up two weeks in a row on a holiday. We're going to get you next week when you actually have to go back to work. Yeah, that's the idea. Well, I'm going to go to the gym now. And then because unlike last week, where you're paying for it, if it's in your building a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, it, 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 today is a day to be spent out uh, on the bay, I think. But, you know, it's uh, it's beautiful here in Miami. We're going to take advantage of it. So uh, I, I hope you can enjoy the rest of the day as well. Yeah, my I'm going to teach a three year old and a seven year old or improve their bike riding skills right now. So I'm going to be a, a practice in patience. That, that's my plan is go outside and teach kids to ride bikes. So dude, cool. thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day, guys. Everyone, we will be back, of course, tomorrow morning, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until then, see you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Peace. That's dope.